You know, podcast family, I think there's some real satisfying parts of doing an OB ultrasound. I mean, I love it when we catch that perfect crown rump length with the perfect little symmetric yolk sac right next to it and the little cardiac flutter scene right in that perfect plane. Or how about capturing that perfect abdominal circumference? I mean, you know what I'm talking about, that perfect J scene as the umbilical vein becomes the portal sinus and the little stomach bubble is perfectly round and symmetric off to the side. Or what about that perfect view of the transverse image of the three-vessel umbilical cord. I mean, I love it when I see that classic little Mickey Mouse face appearance. Oh, it's super satisfying. Ah, but we shouldn't take these images for granted, and we definitely shouldn't rush doing them. The umbilical cord, for one, is a big marker for possible anomalies if it's aberrant. This last week, I saw a patient with our resident team who had a single umbilical artery found on her anatomy scan. And because no other gross anomalies were noted on ultrasound, the physicians said, oh, don't worry, your baby looks to be just fine, even though there's a single umbilical artery. Now, cell-free DNA had already been done and it was considered low risk with nothing detected based on cell-free DNA. But should we really be telling patients that the baby is just fine just because we don't see any gross anomalies on ultrasound? Well, a population-based study out of Norway tells us to take a more cautious approach with that because of new findings according to their research. So in this episode, we're going to cover the SUA, the single umbilical artery, and what are we supposed to do with that? And just because we don't find any other gross anomalies on ultrasound doesn't necessarily mean that the baby is out of the woods. So let's cover the SUA right now. Our goal is to keep everyone up to date and practicing evidence-based medicine because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. First, let's start with a little embryology review. Remember that the umbilical arteries begin in the fetus from the right and left sides of the iliac arteries. They then develop upwards along both sides of the bladder, go through the abdominal wall, and then join the umbilical vein and exit the abdominal wall through the umbilical cord. But it's that area, as they go upwards along both sides of the bladder, where you can really diagnose these two umbilical arteries well. Yes, you can do an ultrasound and get the transverse view of the cord and see the three vessels that way, but if you put Doppler on the fetal bladder and you see the two umbilical arteries course on either side, it's a great way to prove that the fetus has two umbilical arteries. Okay, so we've all been trained to look for the three-vessel cord, right? But as a side note, not all three-vessel cords are anatomically correct, nor are they all benign. Just because you see three vessels doesn't mean they're the right kind of vessel. So it's important to make sure that the three-vessel cord that we're seeing is actually two small arteries and then the one larger vein. On rare occasions, the umbilical cord actually contains three patent vessels, which is good, but it's actually one artery and two veins. Remember, of course, that the normal anatomy of the umbilical cord should be two small arteries and one larger umbilical vein. But in this rare kind of anomaly, it can happen where there's one artery, but two umbilical veins. The veins arise from the left umbilical vein, and there's also a persistent anomalous right umbilical vein. 
This form of single umbilical artery has been associated with major congenital anomalies and it results in a poor fetal prognosis. Yes, it's true, this is a rare condition, but it does make the point that not all umbilical cords with a single umbilical artery are two-vessel cords. So don't fall into that trap of thinking, oh, it's just a single umbilical artery, therefore it's a two-vessel cord. There is this kind of rare possibility where you have a three-vessel cord and still have a single umbilical artery, all right? One artery and then two anomalous umbilical veins. But that's why it's important that when we do this transverse view of the of the umbilical cord, that the cord actually looks right. It should be one large central umbilical vein and then the two smaller umbilical arteries, of course, on top, like the classic Mickey Mouse face appearance, or at least offset to the side based on how you take that cut of the view and the spiral of the cord. And that's why we mentioned a little earlier putting Doppler around the fetal bladder. If you see those two umbilical arteries course around the fetal bladder, it just helps to prove that what you're seeing really is a two umbilical artery view. Well, now that we've covered that weird kind of off situation of the single umbilical artery yet still three-vessel cord, let's talk about the more usual situation of a single umbilical artery, which is a two-vessel cord. The single umbilical artery, or SUA, happens around 0.2 to 1% of all pregnancies that end at life birth. Here's a clinical pearl. If you're ever asked what's the prevalence of a single umbilical artery, the most complete answer is, well, it depends when you look. The prevalence of single umbilical artery, or SUA, is actually much higher in the first trimester. However, because it can be associated with genetic abnormalities or some malformations, they tend to be lost as miscarriage. That's why the prevalence seems to drop as you get to live delivery. So by the time you get to a term live birth, the rate is down to 0.2 to 1% because those that were associated with other conditions may have been lost. So according to the data, although it's 0.2 to 1% at time of live birth, it can be as high as 6% during the first trimester, again, usually associated with some other fetal issues. So how does a baby end up having a single umbilical artery? I mean, how does that happen? It's supposed to be two arteries in a vein. Well, there's three mechanisms that have been put forward, and one has most of the weight behind it, and it's probably the correct one. But the first theory is that the single umbilical artery is just a residual leftover of an embryological remnant called the allantotic artery. Remember, of course, that the allantosis is the part of the initial body stock that becomes the umbilical cord. And in there, there's kind of one artery called the allantotic artery that later splits into the two arteries. So the first theory is that it just doesn't split. And so you're kind of left with this one allantotic artery remnant. The second theory is that there's just primary agenesis of one of the umbilical arteries. Translation, well, one just doesn't form. That's probably not the case. The third theory is the most likely to be at play here, and that's that there's secondary atresia or atrophy of a previously normal umbilical artery. In other words, that one allantotic artery forms, it splits off into two, and then for some reason one just kind of goes away. 
about 40% of umbilical cords that are found to have a single umbilical artery, once they're examined after birth microscopically, they actually have muscular remnants within them, which supports this secondary atresia theory over the other two theories. So remember, three theories are, one, the single allantotic artery doesn't divide, so you're left with this embryological remnant, probably not the case. The second is that one just doesn't form, called primary agenesis, not likely. And then the third theory that's most likely to be the right one is that you start off with two umbilical arteries, but somewhere down the road, one just goes uh, through atresia or atrophy, and so you're left with a single umbilical artery with the one umbilical vein. Now, here's something kind of interesting. We're going to talk about ultrasound diagnosis in just a minute. But remember that at the level of the fetal bladder, if you put Doppler on, you can see the two little red marks on either side of the bladder, which are the two umbilical arteries. But the sightedness, whether right or left, of the missing artery actually doesn't seem to have any real clinical significance. That's what the majority of the data show. But there was one article back in 1995 in the Gray Journal, remember that's the American Journal of OBGYN with the lead author of Abu Hamad et al. that showed that they were much more likely to have complex fetal anomalies and even chromosomal abnormalities if the single umbilical artery resulted from the absence of the left umbilical artery. All right, so that's a little quinky dink. There is one article saying, oh, if you're missing the left umbilical artery, it's worse. But the majority of the other data say that, nah, it doesn't really matter if you're missing the right or the left. What's important is just that you kind of have a single umbilical artery. Now, in cases of the single umbilical artery, that artery is typically larger than it would be in a normal three-vessel cord with two umbilical arteries. You see, in the normal three-vessel cord, blood flow to the placenta is approximately equally distributed through both arteries. But in the two-vessel cord, the entire fetal placental circulation has to be transported through only one artery. And so you get this compensatory increase in arterial diameter. All right, podcast family, when we come back, let's take a look at some risk factors that have been identified as placing the patient at higher risk of having a fetus with a single umbilical artery. If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Let's talk about some risk factors for having a fetus with single umbilical artery, although of course this can happen sporadically as an anomaly all by itself. Single umbilical artery has been associated with maternal smoking, diabetes, hypertension, and even seizure disorders. 
Single umbilical artery has also been reported to occur more frequently in pregnancies at extremes of maternal ages and in Eastern Europeans and less frequently in Japanese and African patients. There are inconsistent data that male fetuses are more likely to be affected than female fetuses, but this was actually not verified in the recent population based study that we're going to talk about in just a bit. That's that same study from Norway that we mentioned in the intro. So, although some data says, oh, male fetus much more likely to have it. Other data says, no, it doesn't really matter what sex the, the fetus is. If it's going to happen, it's going to happen. Single umbilical arteries also more common in twin pregnancies at up to 4 to 8%. And there seems to be similar prevalence, whether it's monochorionic or dichorionic twins. Now, in cases of twins where one twin has a single umbilical artery and the other doesn't, in other words, there's an SUA discordancy, the smaller twin is more likely to have the single umbilical artery. And lastly, single umbilical artery is almost universally present in acardiac twins. All right, podcast family, hang in there because we're going to cover management right now. And this is going to be wrapping up the podcast. And we're going to touch base on that Norway study because it did bring out this one point that people weren't really aware of. They're like, oh, that can happen too. And that's why we should be more cautious when we find this. And even though we don't find other anomalies on the child on ultrasound, we shouldn't always say, oh, I think everything looks great. Your cell-free DNA is fine. Because there's some things that we won't know up until the child is born. Regarding management, this is a quick summary of the SMFM console series number 57, which is, quote, evaluation and management of isolated soft umbilical markers for aneuploidy in the second trimester, end quote. And now this console series addresses a single umbilical artery, and this was last updated October 2021. Remember, of course, that a single umbilical artery can occur as an isolated finding. In other words, there's no other gross ultrasonographic markers, and that's called the isolated SUA. But in some cases, single umbilical artery may be associated with a collection of other findings that helps suggest either a specific disorder or a syndrome. When a single umbilical artery is found, there has to be a detailed ultrasound to look for gastrointestinal, heart, and renal anomalies, and even anomalies of the brain, and sometimes even of the bones. If additional anomalies are found, then there's up to a 50% chance that the baby has a chromosomal abnormality, and specifically trisomy 13 or 18. So it's important to ask for cell-free DNA testing if the patient desires it and agrees to it if it has not yet been done. So trisomy 13 and 18 are highly likely if there's a single umbilical artery and other congenital anomalies found. So remember that as a clinical pearl. Now let's go to Norway as we get ready to wrap up this data review. Since 2001, it's been mandatory. Actually, the word used is compulsatory. So I don't know if there's a difference between compulsatory and mandatory. I think it's the same. Nonetheless, it's been required that anybody who does a delivery or even does a miscarriage care 
after 12 weeks, they have to enter certain information into a national database. Now, that's in addition to the medical record, right? So you got your medical record, and then you enter data into the Medical Birth Registry of Norway. But part of that data entered includes umbilical cord information. So anything that's aberrant, if it's not a, just a straight three-vessel cord to arteries in the vein on gross inspection, you have to enter that as a cord anomaly. And it's not all just two-vessel cords. This could be supernumerary cords. It could be uh, hyperwound or hypowound. It could be umbilical cord cysts. It could be a thrombotic event in a cord. So it's a big category. But the idea is that's how detailed this medical birth registry is, that it even includes small details on the umbilical cord. So basically, they are open to data collection and research because they've got all this information that's nationwide. About 10 years ago, I had a great opportunity to go to Trondheim, Norway, and I stayed there for about a week working with their OBGYNs. I was doing some research down there. And actually, when I come to think about it, I think the company that I was collecting data for was mad at me. I mean, they sent me in their dead of winter. Dead of winter in Norway is no easy task when you're from Texas, all right, to put that into perspective. But I remember even back then, I mean, I was very impressed with how they catalog things and had all this data and this national databases for everything. So these researchers in, in this publication that we're going to talk about, they thought, well, we've got all this data about umbilical cords because you have to enter umbilical cord data into this national registry. Well, let's take a look about single umbilical arteries and see what kind of anomalies that these children may have had. So it's actually a great source of data. And that's why a lot of stuff comes out of Norway, because they have these huge population models and databases that they pour information into. Now, if you question most OBGYNs about a single umbilical artery, I mean, and they know some kind of data, they're going to go, oh, most likely related to GU and cardiac abnormalities. And that's totally right. But this recent population-based study from Norway actually showed some additional information. And it's not always about things that you can see on ultrasound, because some things you may not be able to see until the child is born. This publication came out in 2020, and it was in the journal Ultrasound in Obstetrics and Gynecology, and Ebbing is the chief author. This was, again, a population-based outcome study on the single umbilical artery and associated malformations. The researchers found that in 10.9% of the cases, SUA was associated with at least one malformation. So remember, about 10% according to this Norway study. This large population-based study found that pregnancies with a single umbilical artery had a strong association with congenital malformations in the upper and lower GI tract, specifically atresia or stenosis, as well as the already familiar issues of renal agenesis and congenital heart defects. And so that's the piece that wasn't really known or accepted that well until this study came out. Yes, we get the GU issues, we get the cardiac issues, and we weren't really that aware that GI atresia or stenosis was actually a thing. You need this huge population study like they do have in Norway, this database, to look at that. So that's an important thing for us to realize because these defects may not be found until after the child delivers. Another new finding from this study was that single umbilical artery, when combined with a malformation, right, so when, not when it's isolated, but when there was some other congenital birth defect, there was actually a higher chance of it recurring in a subsequent pregnancy. So the author said, hey, wait a minute, if there's a single umbilical artery and there's another anomaly, this is more
more than just kind of a random issue. This could be either an environmental factor or some yet unknown genetic predisposition that causes this to recur in a subsequent pregnancy. Now, it was in a high rate of recurrence, but it was there higher than compared to baseline. So those are two big observations that were relatively new from this 2020 population study. Number one, gastrointestinal tract atresia or stenosis could be associated with the SUA, and you may not see that on ultrasound. And the second finding is, is that if the SUA had an associated malformation, there was a higher risk of recurrence in a subsequent pregnancy. As we wrap up our summary of the 2020 publication from the journal Ultrasound in Obstetrics and Gynecology, there was one other important finding. Remember we had talked about earlier that some studies suggested that the SUA was more common in male fetuses? Well, that's not what it was found in Norway. Out of that population-based database, there was no difference in the risk of SUA between male or female neonates. Let's wrap this up with the last set of clinical pearls. For fetuses with an isolated SUA, in other words, you can't find any of the gross anomaly on ultrasound, SMFM recommends no additional evaluation for missing or extra chromosomes, regardless of whether results of previous screening for aneuploidy were low risk or testing was declined. In other words, hey, there's an SUA, I don't see anything else going on, your self-free DNA was negative or you didn't get it, but it's fine, we're not going to do any other testing because it's isolated and that's your lowest risk of an issue. That's good. Now, because isolated SUA, though, has still been associated in some studies with an increased risk of stillbirth and fetal growth restriction, then a third trimester ultrasound to evaluate fetal growth and even antenatal testing should be done starting at 36 weeks and zero days. Remember that a single umbilical artery is listed as an ACOG indication for outpatient fetal surveillance in Committee Opinion 828. All right, so remember, you did your ultrasound, you find a single umbilical artery, but there's no other malformations. You don't have to pursue an amnio. You can offer cell-free DNA. It's helpful, but it's, again, not required as long as it's a single umbilical artery. That is an isolated single umbilical artery. Nothing else going on. But because of the risk of stillbirth and fetal growth restriction, do a follow-up ultrasound for fetal growth, and then begin antepartum testing at 36 weeks and zero days. Now, if you find the single umbilical artery and there's other congenital anomalies, then remember that regardless of what the cell-free DNA test showed, then offer diagnostic testing. Remember, cell-free DNA is very good, but it's only a screening test. So if there's a single umbilical artery and there's other gross anomalies noted on ultrasound, and if the patient desires genetic evaluation, then getting a true diagnostic test can be helpful. And lastly, as the last clinical pearl, pediatric providers have to be informed of the prenatal findings of the single umbilical artery because additional findings and syndromes may go undetected until delivery. And that specifically includes things like parts of GI atresia or stenosis. So don't forget, include your neonatologist or your pediatrician and let them know that a single umbilical artery was found on OB ultrasound. 
And before we bring up the closed music, remember that this is one of the cases where you definitely want to send the placenta for pathological study, and they can also get histological study, the umbilical cord. Don't throw that away, even though you can look at it and you can document one artery in one vein. It's good to have that confirmed and evaluated histologically. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered the SUA, the single umbilical artery, assuming, of course, it's a two-vessel cord and not the single umbilical artery with the weird three-vessel cord where there's one artery and two veins. So I hope this podcast was helpful to you or thankful for you. Have a great rest of your day, week, weekend, or whenever you're listening to this podcast. And we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.